So we are, as Pastor Rod said, going to dive back into our series here from the book of Galatians. Look at Derek jogging. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's good. You're hitting top speeds there, brother. That's good. That's good. Uh, we are going to dive back into this series looking at Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. And I, I was thinking about this message just a little bit, and it's actually kind of a negative message. Uh, and the reason it's a negative message, because it's a negative passage. Uh, in other words, Paul is really rebuking the Galatians in this passage. So I would say this is, ready? You, you got to put your th theological thinking caps on here for just a moment. This is a anti, anti-gospel message. Okay, so it's an anti, anti-gospel message, which hopefully turns out to be actually a gospel message that you're going to hear in the next few minutes. So let me encourage you. Can we really lean in this morning? Because I, I am struck by a sense um, that maybe, just maybe, some of us here this morning need to have some anti-gospels displaced in our life. That some gospel distortions have wormed their way into our hearts, and we need the powerful Word of God through the Holy Spirit to displace them. So can we ask God to do that in the next few minutes together? Father, would you do what only your word can do? Lord, your word is a hammer, it is a fire, and it is powerful. And I pray today that we would accept no substitute gospels. Lord, help us not to settle for something that is destructive and dooms us, but rather to once again be confronted by the overwhelming, reckless love of God. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. So we turn to the Savior right now. Lord, would you help us? Send your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've been in Atlanta for very long you know about the incident that happened right here in the good old A that was a travesty, it was a shame, it was a mockery, it was a travesty mockery. It was back in 1985 when Coke launched the disastrous product known as what? New Coke. In 1985, Pepsi had been gaining ground by their famous blind test test, taste test, the Pepsi Challenge. So Coke made a radical move and shelved their famous product, put the secret recipe back in the vault, and launched what was known as New Coke. The funny thing is, is they had tested New Coke extensively. People from all over, over 100,000 blind taste tests actually preferred New Coke over not only Pepsi, but over Old Coke. But then when they rolled out the brand, they could not anticipate the backlash. There was outrage, I mean, complete outrage. Sales fell, they dropped off dramatically. People felt a sense of real loyalty to Coca-Cola and the new Coke messed with it. In fact, back in the day, pre-internet, when you can log on and make a complaint, they were getting eight thousand calls a day. That's a lot of calls. 8,000 calls a day urging them to put Coca-Cola back on the shelf. And so they did. 
They did. They went away from this new and novel product and back to the original. 77 days, the company decided to relaunch the original formula, and they called it Coca-Cola Classic. That's right. Sales not only returned, but the company emerged and the from the incident and grew stronger. Why do I bring this up? Well, I think this reaction, the consumer reaction, mirrors the reaction of the Apostle Paul in this passage. When you read Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is amazed. He's astonished. He's outraged that the Galatian believers have moved on from the original. They went after something new and novel, and Paul is saying, I am urging you, I am rebuking you, I am telling you that you can't replace the real thing. If you know the Coca-Cola ads, that was a little, you know, okay, yeah, very subtle, very subtle there, right? Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse number 6. Here's how Paul responds. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Simply put, Paul is not so subtly rebuking the Galatians from untethering from the gospel and trusting in a substitute gospel. They turned away from the message of Jesus and turned to another message. So what's going on in Galatia? What's happening? Why does Paul have this sense of outrage? Why is he so astonished? Well, as the book makes clear, there were false teachers in Galatia who were insisting that in order to be right with God, you not only had to believe in the work of Jesus, but then you had to keep aspects of the Old Testament laws, the dietary regulations, the ceremonies, especially the rite of circumcision. We see that in Galatians chapter 1, verse number 7. There are some who are troubling you. That's the false teachers. These false teachers are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Or you skip down to chapter 6, and he says a similar thing. Those who want to make a good impression of the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. So these false teachers are coming in, and they're saying, hey, you really want to be right with God? You need a little bit more than this just message of Jesus. Essentially, if I could boil it down, the message of the Galatian false teachers was this, Jesus plus. Can you say that with me? Jesus plus. So the Galatian false teachers are saying, listen, listen, yeah, hey, that message of Jesus is really good, but if you really want to be right with God, you need Jesus plus circumcision. Oh, I, I hear you, that gospel, that's good news and all, but if you want to be truly holy, you need Jesus plus these dietary laws. Yeah, 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 I know you've heard about this message of Christ alone and all that. But if you want to be spiritually mature, you need Jesus plus all of these traditions. They were essentially adding Jesus plus that equals real spirituality, that equals a real relationship with God. However, Paul's message, the message of the authentic gospel was essentially this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That was Paul's theological formula. Jesus plus absolutely nothing equals everything. Or to put it another way, now think about this statement right here, ready? The good news of Christ alone is alone good news. The good news of Christ alone is alone good news. 
if you add anything to Christ alone, you put anything in it, it no longer is good news and it no longer has the power to save you. Okay, let me give you an illustration. So any, um, any people like iced coffee in here? Okay, that's my jam, all right? So let's suppose you had a, a perfect cup of iced coffee this morning, perfect. I mean, and it's one of these big honkers. It's got lots of ice, 32 ounces of deliciousness. There it is, ready, made just the way you like it. I mean, it is the perfect cup of coffee. And just before you're getting ready to drink it, we add, you know, just, hey, just a little, just a half ounce of cyanide. That's all. <laughs> just a half ounce of cyanide. It's like, you know, it's like an espresso shot. Not a big deal. Is that coffee good anymore? Yes or no? No. Because just a little bit of poison corrupts the whole thing. And the same is true of the gospel. Christ alone. Christ alone can save, but if you add just a little bit to it, it's no longer good news to you. It's actually deadly. It will actually kill you. It will actually not only not take you to heaven, it will damn you to hell by trusting it. The message of Jesus alone can save, and that's why Paul is so hot in this passage. Did you notice the language that he uses here? I mean, this is some of the most elevated language in all of the Scripture. Look at what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse number 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be upon him. That's not language we use a lot today, but essentially he, he is, he's saying this, go to hell. And that's the vernacular. If somebody comes in here and preaches a gospel different than the one we teaches, let them go to hell. Then he says it again. And he says that he says it again. Look at the text, verse 9. As we have said before, I say it now again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. This is strong language. Why? Because distorted gospels are deadly. That's why. This is not incidental this is not secondary. This is not tertiary. This is not like the color of the carpet. This is not whether you have a choir or a band. This is not what time your church meets. This is not do you have community groups or Sunday school. This is not what's your style of liturgy. This is not what version you use. This is the central issue. If you mess this up, you lose Christianity. Because a gospel that adds to Jesus, it's not the gospel anymore. It is a distortion of reality. So clearly Paul believed that this was so dangerous. But you might say, but Ryan, we're not in Galatia. I mean, we're right here in the good old U.S. of A. And we're in the South. You know, the Bible Belt. We don't distort the gospel or do we? Or do we? Listen, friends, I would argue that distortion of the gospel was not a Galatian problem. It's a human one. We are all tempted to add a little bit of something to the message that Jesus alone saved. So if any of these sentiments resonate with you in one degree or another, 
then we are all, we are all prone to distort the gospel. If you've ever thought or said something like, well, I grew up in church. I went to Sunday school. My granddaddy was a preacher. I mean, I mean, obviously the Lord accepts me. I mean, I'm a good person. I, I serve. I mean, I, I serve in church. I get, man, you should even see my bank account. I give money. I mean, clearly, clearly I've got a right relationship with God if that's going on. <laughs> I am a decent person. I'm not, I'm not like those people. I mean, there's bad people in the world. It's not me. I don't fit that category. I'm, I'm a good, church-going, religious person. I'm spiritual. I mean, I even read my Bible. I mean, I'm really, every day I'm trying to get a little bit better and do good things in the world. Listen, friends, if you put your confidence in any of those things for your justification before God, that is another gospel. Those are not bad things. I hope all of those things are true of you, but if your confidence, just if your confidence, if your trust, if your hope is in any of those things, then you are believing another gospel. As the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. Where is my source of security? Where is my source of salvation? It is not here. It is not in my hands. It is not in my heart. It is not in my head. It is in heaven. My source of salvation is completely, as the theologians say, alien to myself. There is nothing in me, not one iota in me, that makes me worthy of God's love or acceptance. All of my righteousness is based on the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. And if you smuggle any contraband into that message, it is a false gospel. And we all got a little smuggler in us, by the way. We all like to work just a little bit just a little bit of contribution into our salvation. The problem is our history, our service, our giving, our decency, our spirituality, our church membership, our baptism cannot save. Jesus can. And that is why it is important for us to stay tethered to the gospel just as it was important for the Galatians. Which leads me to my point this morning, we must never distort the gospel. Never. We cannot change that message one iota. We cannot add just a little bit to it. We can't tweak it. We can't improve upon it because to do so is to make it poison. We must not distort the gospel of Christ. So you hear that and you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But why is it then that the gospel ever does get distorted? Like, you understand that question. Like, if we know we can't do it, why does it ever happen? The reason is, is because false gospels appeal to what I would call our lesser selves. When you preach a false gospel, it, it has an attractive ability. It's like a good salesman in one sense. A false gospel appeals to the selfish part of you and tries to draw you away from trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what we see happening in Galatia, and that's what we see happening in the church today. So I want to briefly, in the next few minutes, point out 
two, just two ways that are the appeals of gospel distortions. Why do gospel distortions work? Two reasons. First thing is, gospel distortions work because they appeal to our self-reliance. That is, false gospels essentially tell you and I that we bring something to the table. And that feels good. It feels good to feel like you bring something to the table. Psychologically, we're like, yeah, I'm a contributor. That, that kind of puffs up our ego and is appealing to us. However, notice the way that Paul describes the gospel in verse number six. Look at what it says. I am amazed. Everybody looking at this text, this is key. I am amazed that you are turning quickly away from him who called you by the, what's it say? Grace of Christ. In other words, the gospel, the real gospel is fundamentally a message of grace. It is fundamentally a message of grace. Listen to this. Here's a summary. We need to think of salvation as a generous gift, not a well-deserved wage. Salvation is a generous gift, not a well-deserved wage. And time and time again, the Bible takes great pains to point this out. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's a gift. Oh, and let me do one up. Not by works so that no one can boast. He's just over and over saying, look, it's not about you. You're saved as a gift, not as a wage. Titus 3, 5. God saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his, what's the word say? mercy. We get salvation not because we deserve it. We get salvation in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. Galatians or Romans chapter 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is, you want a wage? You want what you deserve? According to the scripture, what you deserve is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The exclamation point that the Bible puts on our salvation over and over again is that it is not of you, it is wholly of grace. From start to finish, salvation is a work of grace. But at least in part, what the false teachers in Galatia were saying was that justification is more of a collaboration. It's more of a cooperative effort. You know, we bring something to the table. God brings something to the table. It's really we work together. You know, God, yeah, he does a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sure, 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 that gospel of Jesus and dying on the cross is important. But the reason you're saved is really because you were pretty clever. The reason you were saved is you're not like those people. You're not like really, really bad. I mean, you're bad, but, and, and the, the gospel helps you, but you... You know, don't think you could just pull up to the table with nothing in your pocket. I mean, really. You're smarter. You're more religious. You're more clever. You grew up in a good home. You don't have the brokenness of somebody else. Yes, obviously God wanted you on, your, on his team. You're like a good pick. You're like a number one draft pick. That's why you're saved. Yes, the gospel plus something in you that you brought to the table. But Paul says anathema on this. It's kind of like this. Let me see a unlucky victim right now. Marcus. Okay, Marcus is here. So 
let's say, hey, Marcus, Nicole, man, I'd love to take your family out to dinner. And uh, so, so, you know, we round up the troops and the thorns and us go out to dinner. And it's a fancy restaurant. Let's look at the most fancy restaurant in Atlanta. Morton's. Okay, you got it, bro. <laughs> so we go to Morton's. We roll up in there and I'm like, listen, Marcus, it's on me, man. It's on me, whatever you guys want. So the whole family, I mean, they just ordered up. They order appetizers, they order desserts, they order it all, I mean, the menu. And then they bring out the bill. The waiter brings out the bill. And, um, and I reach in my pocket and I pull out my credit card and I go to pay, I hand it to the waiter and Marcus is like, hey, 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 man. So generous of you, dude, but let me, let me help out. Let me help out. I'm like, no, man, I, I, I want to take you out. He's like, no, seriously, let, let me help out. And then he reaches down in his pocket and he pulls out seven cents. And he smacks it on the table, says, there you go. And as we're getting up to leave, he looks over at me and he says, man, Ryan, Thanks for doing this. We really provided my family a good meal, didn't we? <laughs> now that's funny, it's silly. And yet, can we not do that to the Lord? He says paid in full and we're like, no, 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 Lord, I got it. Here's a ball of lint, let me contribute. Aren't you glad we're on the team together? Aren't you glad you brought me into the saving work? No, no, no. That ultimately, if Marcus did that at one level, we chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. At another level, it's deeply offensive because he's essentially saying, I paid for what I could not or did not pay for. And friends, when we do that to the Lord and smuggle in our self-righteousness, smuggle in our work, smuggle in our religion, any Christian contraband corrupts the gospel corrupts the gospel and it makes it no longer the gospel. Yes, false gospels appeal to our self-reliance, but the real gospel says, I don't want anything from you. God is always the giver. I think sometimes we are tempted by self-reliance because we do not grasp the desperateness of our position. You know, have you ever heard the illustration? It's common in the church of like uh, sharing the gospel with someone is like throwing a drowning man a life preserver. Have you ever heard that before? Like nod more vigorously because I, yes, okay. If you haven't, the illustration is essentially this. It's like, you know, if we have the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we're throwing out a life preserver to somebody who is drowning and they just need to take a hand on it. Well, I appreciate the illustration in the sense that it shows the urgency, right, of sharing our faith, and that's really good. But I think the biblical picture is actually much bleaker than that. When you read through the Bible, it's not about us throwing life preservers to drowning people. It's really that they're drowned people. They're already dead. And, and by the way, they've been so for quite a while, and they're decomposing at the bottom of the ocean. They don't need a life preserver. They need a resurrection. And when we understand that's really our plight, that we are completely lost, then self-reliance starts to go out the window. What do dead people bring to the table? Nothing. In fact, there's a beautiful picture of it over in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. And, and God is speaking there to the prophet Ezekiel, and he takes him out to a valley. 
and it's full of bones. And they're not just bones, they're what kind of bones? Dry bones. In other words, these aren't just dead, decomposed people. These are dead, decomposed people that have been that way for a long time. How much power do the bones have? Zero. And then God says to the prophet, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, he's kind of like from a human perspective, he's like, Ooh. I mean, you know, Lord, like, I'm not going to get this one wrong. And the Lord says, yes, they can speak to the bones. I mean, I don't know about you, but speaking to bones never made them live in my life before. I don't like eat a T-bone and then like live. But the analogy is simply this, is that God is saying, when you speak my life-giving word over people that are spiritually dead and decomposing, then they live and the whole valley of bones gets filled with an army. That was our plight. We're dead. We're dead for a long time. We are powerless. We are helpless. And God speaks to us the gospel, and it has power to raise. Self-reliance should fly out the window. We bring nothing to the table in our salvation. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin. Romans 5 Verse number six, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare die. Look at this, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Until you acknowledge the degree of your helplessness, you will not be amazed by the depth of God's grace. You know why the gospel rests lightly on some of your shoulders? Because you've never been wrecked by your sin. You've never seen your powerlessness. Listen, church, the song is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a what? Grace is amazing because we see our wretchedness. It's not adequate grace. It's not half bad. God, help me on my way. Perhaps salvation is not always as precious to some of us because we are still smuggling a little self-reliance into the gospel. A little bit of our own works, a little bit of our own process, a little bit of our own goodness. And if we do so, it's like pouring cyanide into that coffee. Number two, why do false gospels appeal to us? Why do distortions of the gospel have sway on our hearts? They not only appeal to our self-reliance, they appeal to our self righteousness. Huh. When you look through the book of Galatians, this was certainly true. There were these false teachers, and they kind of looked down their nose on other people who didn't believe like them. In other words, their gospel created in them a sense of superiority over other people. That's what false gospels do, by the way. False gospels make us feel better, make us prop ourselves up over other people, and that's why they work. Because we're all pretty selfish at core. At our root, we are all selfish people. We love us for some us. You know who thinks about Ryan McCammick the most? Ryan McCammick. You know who is committed to Ryan McCammick the most? Ryan McCammick. Do you know who wants Ryan McCammick's agenda the most? Ryan McCammick. And the same is true for insert your name. 
We are all deeply committed to our own superiority, our own way of looking at things, our own way of doing things, and false gospels appeal to those demons in our hearts. Paul rebukes the false teachers using a bit of sarcasm. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse number 15. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We're not like them. That's, that, that's the message of the false teachers. We're not like them. In other words, listen, gospel imitations inflate. Gospel imitations inflate. If you believe a false gospel, part of the reason that you believe it is it will inflate your ego. This is powerfully illustrated in Jesus' story about the tax collector and the Pharisee. You know, in Jesus' day, there was a group who felt superior to others. That group was known as who? Pharisees. And Jesus consistently took them on head on. And he tells this story illustrating this idea of, of self-righteousness that they propped themselves up with. Look at what it says, Luke chapter 18, verse number 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. A Pharisee, that's the good man in one sense, and the other a tax collector, a bad man. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. I love that line, praying about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. You see the self-righteousness here. He's a good man. He does all the right things on the outside, but in his heart, he's believing a gospel that makes him puffed up. He looks down on other people. He's not been destroyed by the grace of God. And then there's the tax collector. And look at what it says about him. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus tells the conclusion, I tell you that this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Listen to this. The distorted gospel of the Pharisee was this. God loves good people more than bad people. And I'm a good person. The real gospel of the tax collector is this. God can make good people out of bad people. And I'm a bad person. See how it's flipped on its head there? False gospels create self-righteousness. The true gospel humbles us. Any gospel that leads a person to believe that he is accepted by God because he is morally or spiritually or intellectually superior is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any gospel that leads you to think that you are better than someone else, morally or spiritually or intellectually, is not the gospel that Jesus Christ preached. The true gospel humbles us because self-righteousness is absolute folly. It borders on the idea of insanity. Let me give you an illustration. So let's suppose here that, do you see, can you see this tape here? There's a piece of tape right over here by Pastor Rod. Wave your hand, Pastor Rod, where you are. Way over here. There's another piece of tape right over here. Danny, right here. Let's suppose this, this gap represents the chasm between God and man. That's created by our sin. 
There is a giant chasm between God and man. And the reality is I could put this here and put this in, you know, Saskatchewan, and that still would not show the depth of the chasm between God and man. But for our purposes, we'll illustrate it this way. So who in here is like, I need a volunteer here. Who in here is like, I can jump, but I would not consider myself in any way, shape, or form athletic. Who, who would say, that's me, I, I, can, I can make a little jump. All right, come on, come on, come on. All right, and I'm gonna get a ringer here. AJ, are you hurt in any way right now? Are you injured in any way? You are injured, okay, all right. I was gonna get AJ because he's, you know, like a Greek god or something like that, so. Um, all right, I need, I need an athlete here. Who is, a, who is a superior athlete right here, right here? Peyton, no. no. <laughs> Not sure you can beat Maya here. All right, uh, let's see. Come on, Maya. Come stand up here. Okay. Who's, who's, my, who, who's just got explosive? All right, John. John's going to come. All right, here we go. All right, so Maya, you can't do a very good job on this for my illustration. Okay, all right, all right. Do a poor job. All right. So she doesn't even have shoes on, folks. I don't know what we're going to do here. So, so let's suppose this represents, thanks, John. Let's, this represents the chasm between God and man. And so let's say Maya, she's not a very good person, which is true, right? So, sorry, the thorns are getting, I took you out to dinner, your dad's a jerk, now you're not a very good person. It's, it's a bad situation for the thorns today. This is what happens when you sit in front and I'm preaching. It's bad, it's bad. Okay, so, so Maya, you're going to try to leap this chasm. So go ahead and do that. Ready? One, two, three. That's explosive. Way to go, Maya. Okay, very good. Stay right there. Don't move, don't move. Okay, now John, I'm taking this on authority. Look at this. I see, I see John. Okay, he's got like sandals on though. I don't know if this is the right footwear. All right, John, I need you to jump from here to here as far as you can. All right, ready? Here we go. John's going. Okay, okay, okay. All right, we'll give it to him. Now, very good. Now turn around and face. Now, John is probably three to four times further than Maya. Okay, I mean, he's way further relatively than Maya. But if this represents a chasm, you can face out there, John. What is going to happen to both of them? Fall. They're both dead. It doesn't matter if John jumped double what he jumped, he still falls short of what the standard is. And if the standard is actually Saskatchewan, if you were to map this out, you couldn't even see the difference. It would be the epitome of folly. As, as John and Maya are falling, and John turns around and says, <laughs> I'm better than you are. Because they're both what? Both falling. They're both doomed. They're both dead. And this is what we do when we bring self-righteousness into the table. It's just the epitome of foolishness. I'm better than you are, but we all fall infinitely short of the standard that God actually has for us. So who cares? Who cares if you went to church more or if you read your Bible more? If you're not trusting in the gospel, you're both damned. Self-righteousness is the epitome of foolishness, and we must turn away from any gospel that would puff us up in our heart and cause us to look down on others. Give Maya and John a hand. Thank you very much. Your dad will take you to dinner at Morton's, Maya. He said that, yeah. Steak dinner on Marcus. Very good. Okay. 
Here's the problem. Even though we see the foolishness of this, we all are really good at creating categories that I like to call those people. People we like to look down on. You know what the problem with our country is? It's, try again, it's, you know what's wrong with our church? It's, I'm, I'm just really glad that I'm not like, man, I was raised right, not like, man, if everybody would just think like me and not like, we wouldn't be in this mess. Do you have any of those people in your life? People you love to hate, or maybe not even hate, people you love to look down on because they make you feel better about yourself. We all like to create haters, by the way. And it's not because people are actually hating many times, it's because we're insecure. And we love us some me, and we want other people to love us some me too. That is a, that is a tendency of a false gospel believing that somehow we are secure based on our righteousness, based on our performance, not based on the performance of Jesus Christ in our behalf. Look, false gospels make you haughty, but the true gospel makes you humble. False gospels make you haughty, but the true gospel makes you humble. So this begs the question then, what is the true gospel? We've seen the appeal, the allure of the false gospel what is the true gospel? I'm going to close and give it to you in four very simple points. The first one is this. God is holy. Can you say that? God, the creator of the world, created mankind, built for a relationship with him. They were made to live in perfect harmony with God. And God, being who he is, is completely separate from sin. God is holy. Number two, not only is God holy, man is sinful. Can you say that? Man is sinful. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were given a command by God, don't eat the fruit, and they ate it. And in so doing, they plunged humanity into sin and separated, severed the relationship between God and man. But here's the problem. It wasn't just Adam and Eve's sin that messed stuff up. It's that we sin too. 10,000 times a day, we go our own way. We live as our own king. We exalt our own ego. We lift up our own agenda over God's. And therefore, just as Adam and Eve were guilty of rebelling against the one holy God, you and I, 10,000 times over, are guilty of that same rebellion. That is bad news. Because of that, God could not be in fellowship with sinful man. We were in this chasm. The chasm of God's judgment that none of us were strong enough to leap across. And that is where the good news of the gospel came in. Man, God is holy, man is sinful, but Jesus is our substitute. The Bible tells us that God sent his son in the world, not primarily to be our example or our teacher. He was certainly those things. But God sent his son in the world primarily to be our substitute. On the cross, Jesus hung suspended between earth and sky. Facing the wrath of God for sinners like you and I. As Jesus strung, spread out on the cross, God placed the sins of everybody that would ever dare to put their hope in him on Christ. And the Bible tells us that God the Father looked down from heaven and crushed his son. He punished Jesus for the sins that you and I have committed so that we could respond. That's the final thing. God is holy. Man is sinful. Jesus is our substitute. Our response is simple. Turn and trust. 
our response to the work of Jesus on the cross is that we were going our own way, living as our own king, and we must turn away from that. Essentially, repentance, the biblical word repentance, means that we change the trajectory of our life. We stop saying, I'm in charge, and we essentially say, you're in charge. Here's the key, here's the deed, you run the show. I'm not in, a, I'm not in the driver's seat anymore. In fact, I'm not even in an advisory capacity. I obey you. You are king and I am not. And then we trust. We say, God, I bring nothing to the table. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross I cling. I've got nothing to offer. I don't have a resume. I have a rap sheet. I don't have assets. I have liabilities. And they're all yours, God. And I know that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient. You are the sinless substitute to rescue me from my sins. It is through you and you alone that I can have a right relationship with God. I trust you. Friends, God is what? Man is. Jesus is our and our response is turn and that's it. That is the gospel. And Paul says, don't ever move on from it. You don't graduate, doesn't wear out. It'll never fail you. It'll never let you down. Do not move on from the gospel. So I wanna invite us to respond right now. We're gonna do so in two ways. I'm gonna ask folks on our prayer team when we begin to sing to move towards the walls here. And if you are just sitting here and you'd be like, man, I am, there's some false gospels, some gospel distortions that are tempting me in my life, and I'd like to pray about that. There's some folks that would love to pray with you and just minister to you. And then we're going to sing a song, and it's called In Christ Alone. And I don't want us to just kind of go through the motions here. I want us to worship, worship the Lord who sent his son to jump the chasm that you and I could not jump. Christ alone is good news, alone. It is the only message of hope. It is the only message of life. To add it, to distort it, is to destroy it. So let us from our hearts and from the depths of our soul praise the one who purchased our salvation. May the gospel be precious to us because we see it is the gospel alone that saves. Let's pray and then we'll worship the Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus and his work on our behalf. And I pray for this group that is gathered right now. Lord, if there are folks here that, have, that you're convicting about smuggling some works into their salvation, pray right now they would turn from it. Lord, the Galatians didn't think they were believing a false gospel. They just believed a false gospel. Lord, may we not be duped this morning. Pray that we'd see the preciousness of Christ. Help us to turn and trust and turn and trust and keep on turning and keep on trusting. Never move on from the gospel. Lord, we need you right now. In the precious name of Christ alone, we pray. Let's stand and worship our God.